1: Chief Justice Roberts, President Carter, President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, fellow Americans, and people of the world, thank you.
2: It was the day so many Muslim Americans hoped, even prayed, they would never see. Together we will determine
1: the course of America and the world for many, many years to come.
2: The man who, for two years, built a campaign on banning them from the country, registering their families and monitoring their places of worship, was now their president.
1: We will reinforce old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the face of
2: the earth. He didn't waste a second. Within the first two weeks of office, Trump had signed 10 executive orders, including greenlighting the infamous wall on the Mexico border, putting his far-right chief strategist, Steve Bannon, on the National Security Council, and, of course, banning all travelers and refugees from seven Muslim countries, or at least he tried. Together, we will make America strong again.
1: We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America.
2: But nearly four months after the election, America remains bitterly divided. All right, welcome back, everyone, and thanks for staying with us. It is the top of the hour, and we want to take you to D.C. We have been monitoring the Women's March coming out of Washington and
0: across the entire Millions world. Millions took to the streets Saturday, one day after the inauguration of Donald I Trump. I stand here before you, unapologetically Muslim Americans. Now, we can whimper or we can fight back. Me, I'm here day. to fight back. President
1: Agent Orange... All evil like
0: that. That I will not respect an administration that won an election on the backs of Muslims. Details in right now, Donald Trump about to keep a major uh, campaign promise and signed some executive orders restricting uh, refugees, banning visas from uh, seven uh, majority Muslim Jubilant countries. Jubilant crowds
1: danced and chanted in the streets of Brooklyn after a U.S. federal judge decreed an emergency halt. A federal
3: appeals court in San Francisco has just upheld the suspension.
4: We just got a tweet
2: from the president, see you in court, the security of our Our nation is at stake I'm Muhammad Hassan and this is public enemy in episode one of the series we met Muslims in America anxious and uncertain they described growing up in a climate of hostility ever since 9-11 15 years on in the glare of a heated presidential campaign they were beginning to feel the same fear for their safety in public for their rights and their future We decided to check back in.
0: the The last couple of weeks have been unbelievable. Um, It's the word I keep returning to. It feels um, very surreal and very urgent and dire.
2: This is Adina Lekevich from the Muslim Public Affairs Council.
0: While we knew what uh, this administration was capable of, because they told us all along the campaign trail, the fact that they um, moved at such a uh, such a fast speed. Um, was surprising. Fortunately, um, the response by legal organizations like the ACLU and by everyday people rushing to um, airports, going on social media, being on uh, as many public places as we can imagine, um, pushing back against this, and the judiciary now also pushing back against this Muslim ban um, disguised as uh, selective countries. That's also been uh, astounding. You know, I, when we last talked, I, I told you about a word that we made up in my house called Chrysler the idea that there's an opportunity in every crisis. And I am astounded and also energized by the way that people have uh, met this moment uh, with like an astounding amount of compassion
2: it does feel like a crisis right now to you guys
0: oh god yeah this is this is a crisis of the highest order i mean we, we're watching our, our very democracy and our constitution um uh, being threatened right now and you know if it was just donald trump that would be one thing but steve bannon um uh, now attorney general jeff sessions um The people who are involved in the decision-making for our country are people who fundamentally, I hate to say it, but I don't think that they fully believe in the humanity of Muslims.
2: At the time we recorded this episode, the travel ban, or extreme vetting as the White House calls it, has been stalled by a federal judge, who is backed up by the Court of Appeals. It may go all the way to the Supreme Court, or the President may issue a modified ban. But for the families caught up in the middle of it, There's no way of knowing what will happen next.
0: I mean, it's an emotional roller coaster for families right now who are separated because of uh, the travel ban. I mean, we're at right now where we stand is that um, the ban has been sort of frozen temporarily. And so there's a huge rush for people to get here before before that, that gets lifted. Uh, because it is certainly, um, you know, it's every uh, all bets are off. It's uncertain whether they will be able to come back. Um, and I know personally, firsthand, people who have family overseas and are making some, you know, difficult decisions. I mean, people come here to build a new life and and escape uh, violence and and instability. And the fact that them coming to the United States right now could also represent violence and instability, not in that order, hopefully, it, it puts them in a in a catch-22 of sorts.
2: Right, because they, they're they sort of stuck between the place that they need to leave and, and the place that they're trying to come right. to.
0: Right. And again, we have legal organizations and, and individual lawyers who have rushed to airports to provide le- free legal counsel. That is um, that is so astounding and um, and exactly what we need right now. And uh, organizations like the ACLU and others that are filing um, the bigger lawsuits, that is a saving grace right now. And so on the local level, when it comes to mosques or individual um, Muslim families, um, I know that there are many places that are hosting Know Your Rights uh, trainings or workshops. Our community of Muslims is about three and a half million in the U.S. Uh, about two thirds of them are immigrant in origin. Of those, you know, I don't know how many people People actually, come from those seven countries, but there are lasting effects, and we know that something like a hundred thousand people are uh, potentially impacted by this uh, travel ban. So, while, while it's a huge issue, it's also a micro level issue where it's, it's heartbreaking.
2: In his first interview as president, Donald Trump was asked whether the ban would fuel anger in the Muslim world towards America. There's
1: plenty of anger right now. How can you have more? You don't think it'll exacerbate David, the problem? David, I mean, I know you're a sophisticated guy. The world is a mess. The world is as angry as it gets. Well, you think this is going to cause a little more anger? The world is an angry place.
0: This is not the America that I know. This is not the America that my parents moved to um, for uh, religious freedom, for a better way of life, for an education for their children. That face does not represent our face as, um, as Americans of all different stripes. Um, Most Americans recognize that we're a country made of immigrants and made great by immigrants, um, not just in the past, but uh, but today. And so to have our um, our elected leader uh, be uh, projecting a dark and angry vision of the world is out of sync with um, with how most Americans feel about it. Obama's America offered the opportunity for us to see ourselves as um, as regular mainstream America. And the fact that so many people are awakened right now um, is uh, is a good thing uh, and that we have to stay, you know, as <laughs> as some people say, we have to stay woke, right? Mm-hmm. Um but we have been awakened, and we have to uh, we have to do everything in our power to reclaim America for the beautiful multicultural, um, diverse fabric that it is.
2: The day after Donald Trump was voted in, millions took to the streets to protest in what's been called the largest march in U.S. history. Following the announcement of the travel ban, protesters and volunteer lawyers occupied airport terminals across the country, demanding the policy be scrapped. One of them was Nadine Ibrahim.
3: We did an emergency protest at Denver International Airport. Because it is considered private property, we didn't have a permit, and so there was an attempt to kind of stop that. But I think, um, given the fact that they saw a thousand people showed up, that we prayed maghrib there, that we were not leaving, that um, you know we were just simply standing there holding signs, um, and just making a really strong physical statement, um, they ended up letting us stay there, and they and the um, the city mayor ended up um, giving us. Uh, what you can say kind of like an emergency permit around that. And we also had a a plethora of immigration lawyers that continue to volunteer their time to be there at the gates assisting people as they continue to be questioned. Um, And, you know, in our communities, we sent out mass information around if you're stopped, these, these are your rights, be sure to verbally state them, and this is what you can ask for around this. So, you know, we had that emergency protest, and it was really great to see that and to really kind of send that message of solidarity the message of we refuse to accept that uh executive order and it's it was huge when the federal judge granted a stay on that executive order and we continue to wait and see what is going to be the judicial system's response to this executive order and whether or not it will continue to uphold or whether it'll be altered or whether it will be removed
2: what did it feel like for you to be there and and pray In an airport terminal, you know, where where notoriously it's a place where a lot of Muslims do feel uncomfortable and do feel like they're not welcomed.
3: It was beautiful. We a lot of our allies donated their jackets for us to pray on them. Um, The police tried to tell us that we need to go to the interfaith uh, center to go pray, that we couldn't pray publicly there, but we still prayed there. Um, And it was really great to be there along with my sisters and to pray I think that was one of the most beautiful um, relaxed prayers I've ever had because our allies were witnessing us praying and they were they, a lot of them interlocked arms, creating um, like a fence of solidarity around us to make sure nobody came in and disrupted our prayer time. So it was really beautiful um, to see that and it, I felt very relaxed and I felt protected within that space.
2: For community organizers like Nadine, it's day in and day out. She's there speaking at rallies on campus, in public places, at mosques, to senators, the mayor. Her phone is constantly buzzing with desperate calls from students wanting to find out what's going to happen to them and their loved ones. She started a buddy system with her female Muslim friends to make sure no one's going out alone at night in case they're attacked.
3: It's been very exhausting. Uh, It's been very emotionally draining. Uh, I mean, I would be lying too if I didn't have, uh, and saying that I didn't have any like meltdowns in the last few months. Um, I don't think I've had my mental health be so compromised um, ever in my life as it is in this time period since the election. Actually, since the inauguration more than anything else. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been really difficult, um, but we refuse to back down because to me and to a lot of the people that I work with, um, silence is a form of acceptance. Um and we refuse to be silent around this and we demand that the Constitution be upheld to the extent that it's supposed to be upheld and we refuse to accept any type of executive orders that are ultimately discriminating against people on the basis of them being uh, in the words of the Trump administration implemented to protect our national security
4: hmm.
2: so you guys I mean it's 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 fight or flight right now, isn't it
3: it really is. It really is. It's so hard. It's so hard to keep pushing for this. It's like, you know, it's it's crazy to think how much we have to fight for justice and um, uh, enforcement of civil rights to be upheld. I mean, we saw it the second that the the second, you know, literally after the day of inauguration, the civil rights page was removed from the White House page. LGBTQ rights page was removed from the civil rights page, and it just um, we. It's just um, it's just crazy.
2: Trump's policies have already sent ripples across the world. The Canadian man who shot up a mosque in Quebec last month, killing six Muslims, cited Donald Trump as a main influence. In Europe. Upcoming elections could see pro-Trump and anti-Muslim candidates as heads of state in France and the Netherlands. A bill currently before the Australian Senate would give the current immigration minister, Peter Dutton, the power to revalidate visas of, and I quote, specified class of persons, and halt immigration from certain countries if it's in the public interest. To put things in context, this is what he had to say in November, about Lebanese Muslim migrants.
1: If we're talking about a significant number of people within that community who are doing the wrong thing, uh, then clearly mistakes have been made in the past. And the reality is that Malcolm Fraser did make mistakes uh, in bringing some people in in the 1970s, and uh, we're seeing that
2: today, And, and we need to be honest in having that discussion. The former immigration minister, now treasurer, Scott Morrison, said Trump's travel ban was proof the world was catching up to Australia's approach on border security. So how do Australian Muslims feel about that?
5: I mean, how do I feel about it? I'm not surprised, to be honest. The warning signs have been there for a long time, and people have been arguing this point, including myself, for a long time that we're heading down this path.
2: This is Mohammed Taba, a researcher at Melbourne University. We spoke to him in episode two about Australia's counter-terror policies and the rise of far-right parties like Pauline Hanson's One Nation.
5: I do agree that America, in, in some parts, followed Australia's lead, I do agree with the um, treasurer on that. Uh, you know, Australia sort of led the way in terms of immigration policy. Obviously, America has gone a little bit further down that track and, um, you know, been a little bit more explicit in their language. Um, I mean, it is what it is. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty bad. We all know that. What I usually like to focus on is from our end as a Muslim community, what have we done to prevent this, perhaps to pave its way, and, and also in the current times, what are we doing to resist it? Even example one of the common responses we've had towards islamophobia and racism from many muslim leaders across the west is for example it's coming out now in the u.s uh, you know this isn't the america that we know this is un-american or in our context this is un-australian i think that sort of language and that approach is unhelpful in that it misses the fact that actually this is very american it's very australian um these are not aberrations these are um these are policies that have been entrenched over a very long periods of time, and this is, I would argue, the inevitable result. So I do think there was a little bit of, um, what can we call it, I guess, a hopeful... I would call it naivety, to be perfectly blunt. Um, I guess some people would call it hopeful optimism or something of that sort. Um, but I do think that really stifled a lot of, you know, what could have been meaningful resistance to these sorts of policies.
2: So what kind of resistance do you think the Muslim community needs to be undertaking...
5: Look, it's hard to say, obviously, it's all speculation, um, and it's much easier, you know, acknowledge to, to, you know, critique what's currently happening. But one obvious one is, you know, what's currently taking place across parts of the U.S., um, allying with other groups. This is something, I think, that's long overdue, something, you know, a bit of a missed opportunity, if you will. Um, Many other groups have been through similar scenarios. They've worked out tactics, you know, uh, plans what works, what doesn't. Um, You know, they've also formed networks, increased their resources and so on. That's something that we, you know, really uh, lack in this strange context.
2: It's those networks the Muslim community might need sooner than they thought. In order to retain its place in government, Australia's leading Liberal Party struck a deal last week with One Nation. You know, the guys that want to ban Muslims and shut down mosques. To support each other's candidates ahead of the upcoming state election in West Australia. And with the immigration bill worming its way through Parliament, it seems all but inevitable a travel ban is on its way.
5: Absolutely. I mean, it's there in the bill. Um, It's simply a matter of whether it gets passed or not. I I do think, I mean, we've got it in writing very similar to to the US policy. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't go through, to be perfectly honest. Um, Either, you know, perhaps watered down a little bit, but I don't see why a policy like that wouldn't go through either now or sometime in the near future.
2: And what will it mean for the Muslim community in Australia?
5: I mean, essentially, it would just increase the pressure. I don't want to pretend that it's going to, you know, um, I think for most of us it's not going to be a big shock, you know, oh, we were living comfortably and then this ban came in. I think it will just, you know, um, turn up a few notches of the pressure that we've been facing for the past couple of decades. It will be very interesting to see what happens to people with dual citizenship, um, people travelling in and out of the country for various reasons, and also just, I guess, um, relatives visiting, um, and so on. I mean, I there's really uncertain times. It is frightening, um, but I don't think it's surprising. Look, perhaps, perhaps um, this is just the way that we're dealing with it: is to, you know, accept that it's here, and you know, that sort of a ban or proposal should be, you know, instigating really widespread panic, and I don't feel that it is that much, and I suspect that's just because we've gotten used to so much pressure and so much... I mean, we mentioned in the last episode that, you know, week after week, we're just constantly facing um, new issues. So I think we've become accustomed to that a little bit, which is a bit frightening.
2: The effects of Trump's election have been far-reaching and swift, and it seems anti-Muslim sentiment is fast becoming a new norm. But what's also true is that more people are speaking out against Islamophobia now than ever before in America, Australia and New Zealand. On a crisp Tuesday evening in Auckland, hundreds of people gathered in Aotea Square to do the same.
4: You see, my parents at least had the courage to take this leap of faith and strive for something greater.
2: Ahmed Get Bashir spoke at the rally but his parents who migrated from Sudan to make home in New Zealand. Because they're citizens here, it means they're exempt from Trump's ban. But Ahmed says his cousins are
4: right in the midst of it. My family members can't leave. Like, my cousins can't, essentially can't leave the country now. Even though they live in the U.S., they can't leave the U.S. even, you know, for even a year back to Sudan, just out of fear that they won't be let back in. And I think that in itself is frightening.
2: What are they going through right now?
4: I think confusion, everyone's trying to find hope um, in what's happening, um, but it's hard. But you know, I think that's, that's what a lot of people are just trying to do. Like my cousins, I know from her, that they're just trying to find something, they're trying to find solidarity with the rest of the communities, right? Um, and I think that gets them by, and that gets a lot of people by from losing you know, their sanity, I guess. But people in New Zealand
2: shouldn't pat themselves on the back, he says. This could happen here, too.
4: So New Zealand, uh, people have this perception. Personally, like, people have this perception that New Zealand has always had a very open refugee. Kind of thing, but it really hasn't. Um, the reasons that, for example, the Jewish community is very small here is because New Zealand, after World War II, had a very strict you know, refugee policy. Huh? Um, I think it was an OECD um, report where it showed that New Zealand took one of the least amounts of refugees um, in, co- in comparison to other. Even Australia it took more refugees comparison, compared to their capabilities. So New Zealand is not actually in a great state. People just have this perception that it is, which is even more dangerous than actually being aware of it. During the rally,
2: three Trump supporters arrived and started shouting pretty horrible anti-Muslim stuff, trying to disrupt the speeches. Then, these guys turned up. They're called strangers in a strange band great name, I know, and they've been turning up the protests to boost morale and to shut down trolls. They surrounded the Trump supporters and drowned them out with, well, trumpets. This episode of Public Enemy was produced by me, Muhammad Hassan, for RNZ. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin and our engineer is Leon Wynne. You can check out the first three episodes as well as all our other podcasts online, on iTunes and on Spotify. If you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes and tell your friends.